Hi friends, Fred Harrell here. Thanks for tuning in to the weekly City Church Sermon Podcast. Just a note that as we continue to shelter in place here in San Francisco, we will be bringing you our Sunday Sermon audio recording via Skype over a Facebook Live broadcast. So if the audio quality seems like a little lower than normal, then now you know what's happening. We just wanted you to know. You can join us on Facebook Live each Sunday at 10 a.m. Thanks for listening and subscribing to our podcast. The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of John, chapters 12 and 19. The next day, the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written of him and had been done to him. So the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. It was also because they had heard that he had performed this sign that the crowd went to meet him. The Pharisees then said to one another, You see, you can do nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. They took Jesus, and carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, with Jesus between them. Pilate also had an inscription written and put on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew, in Latin and in Greek. Then the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. The word of the Lord. Let us pray, friends. Gracious God, our Father, God, our Mother, God, the Son, God, our Lover, God, the Spirit, God, our Friend, we invoke your presence with us now. Be with us in the midst of of our fear, our anxiety, our questions, our being stir-crazy, all the challenges of this present moment, we ask that you would meet us here now. Help us to believe that you have seen to it that we are here right now and that you have arranged this time in your love. And help us to know and believe always that you see us in all of our brokenness and in all of our beauty. And your response is always to move toward us to restore, renew, heal, and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Author Anne Lamott says, expectations are resentments under construction. Expectations are resentments under construction. 
Yeah, this account of Jesus' triumphal injury, entry is in all four Gospels, but I tend to like this one the best because it's connected to what we talked about last week, the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Because the word has spread. There was a plot to not only destroy Jesus going on here or execute Jesus, but also Lazarus as well. Jesus was all the rage. This is why it says down in verse 19, the whole world has gone after him. But this will change because expectations are resentments under construction. The dynamic of our scripture reading today puts us in touch with just how close these events are happening. John 12 is at the beginning of the week. John 19 on Friday of that same week. And as one commentator puts it, the narrative goes from hail him to nail him. How do we get from hail him to nail him? Expectations are resentments under construction. That's how. So on the Sunday of Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, the crowd of Passover pilgrims waved palm branches and they shouted, Hosanna! And note that some were no doubt doing this because they were the poorest of the poor. The boot of military occupation and religious oppression came down on their necks with the most intensity. Jesus had made it clear that his kingdom was for such as these. So let's acknowledge the diversity of this palm-waving crowd. Some were the humble poor, hoping desperately for justice. But I would argue also that most of the folks who were waving these palms were doing this as patriotic remembrance, much like we might do on the 4th of July. These Israelites would remember the Maccabean revolt two centuries earlier. And to commemorate the victory, Judas Maccabe Maccabeus, nicknamed the Hammer, stamped an image of palm branches into their coins, which symbolized victory for the Jews over their oppressors. Under foreign rule again, they waved their palms in the air shouting, Hosanna, which means save us or liberate us now. What they were clear, clearly anticipating was that Jesus was about to do it again. Here's the expectation. Jesus, lead a war of independence against the Roman Empire. Do it like Joshua the Canaanite killer, David the warrior who felled Goliath, or Judah the hammer, Maccabeus. But here lies the problem. Jesus was not like the other Jewish war heroes. He's the Prince of Peace. And he comes to rescue us through the surprising and apparent powerlessness of the cross. In Luke's gospel, Jesus in his Luke's gospel account, Luke's gospel in the account of the Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry, Jesus is sitting on the colt and weeping. As, as, as it says in chapter 19, as he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, if you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you and your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. Jesus weeps for a people who don't recognize the things that make for peace. Jesus knows that he has been deeply misunderstood, no matter how clear he had made it. Jesus told them he was going to be betrayed, 
that is into the hands of the authorities, then suffer and die? But they would have none of that talk. How could they? It wouldn't have made any sense to us either. Jesus's tears are compassionate and pragmatic because a generation later, Jerusalem would experience total destruction and the loss of hundreds of thousands of lives as the Romans with their swords and catapult stones pummeled Jerusalem with devastating consequences by insisting on a political rebellion. They were hailing Jesus as king and that is well and good, but there is always the danger of being more concerned about worshiping Jesus, which Jesus gladly accepted, than following Jesus, which he commanded repeatedly. Following Jesus means you take up his ideas and you put them into practice. This means you can worship Jesus and completely miss the point. In fact, I would say you can worship Jesus and you can actually gather lots of theological information about Jesus as a way of ignoring what he taught. It strikes me that as I continue to see Christians insisting on gathering in person to worship Jesus in the midst of a pandemic, that they have to ignore almost everything Jesus taught about love of neighbor in order to do so. What are the things that make for peace? We look to the Sermon on the Mount, where we find the ideas of Jesus. Matthew chapter seven, Jesus said, in everything, do to others as you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who take it, for the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Have you connected the narrow gate to the golden rule? See, it turns out that the narrow gate is not a sinner's prayer. The narrow gate is the practice of the way of Jesus. The narrow gate is fulfilling the law and the prophets by empathetic love of neighbor in imitation of Jesus. Let's be honest. We do this too with our expectations, don't we? We have expectations of God, one of which, one of which might be that God protects us from a deadly virus. The God I expect, colon, provider of steady jobs, fulfilling careers, perfect spouses, and perfect children. How have these expectations of God been resentments under construction for you? Or how have they turned into those? We are all getting a pretty deep baptism right now into the reality that others who have faced unexpected adversity, loss, failure, have known already. The God I expect and the God who is are not the same, usually. Jesus' response to all of this, he continued into town when he could have turned around and regrouped. Jesus comes into Jerusalem from the south side of town on a ridiculous peace donkey instead of on the north side of town on a massive war horse. This is intentional. Jesus teaches his way of peace to the bitter end, continuing to a cross, revealing a God who turns violence, murder, and lust for power that characterizes every superpower and empire into mercy, grace, and forgiveness. And that takes us to John 19, 
We've gone from Jesus being celebrated by desperate and hapless followers and disciples who should have known better, perhaps, to Jesus nailed to a cross, with Pilate deciding he'll write whatever he wants to write on Jesus's cross. Ironically, Pilate understood Jesus better than those screaming Hosanna. Jesus didn't get killed for telling people they will go to heaven when they die if they believe in him. If Jesus of Nazareth had preached merely a promise of going to heaven when you die, Pilate would have shrugged his shoulders and released him. But Pilate put him on a Roman cross. Why? Because Pilate was smart enough to understand that Jesus was throwing a wrench into the politics of empire. As Barbara Brown Taylor says, Jesus was not killed by atheism and anarchy. He was brought down by law and order allied with religion, which is always a deadly mix. Jesus went against that deadly mix. Jesus wasn't doing a, just a random act of kindness with his miracles. They are signs pointing to the arrival of the kingdom of God. And by the kingdom of God, we mean the government of God, the politics of God, the alternative arrangement of the world that comes from God. Jesus was proclaiming to the principalities and powers, the very rich Herod, the very powerful like Pilate, the very religious like Caiaphas, and the institutions they represent, and the malevolent spirits that energize it all, that their time was up because the alternative from heaven was now within reach. Jesus called upon all who heard him to rethink everything, i.e. repent, and believe that a radical rearrangement of the world was good news. But alas, the empire always strikes back because the status quo arrangement that Jesus was challenging was an arrangement that benefited the rich and powerful at the expense of the poor and powerless. And Jesus was the great disruptor who threatened their, their preferred social order. That's how we go from hail him to nail him in five days. That is why the betrayal, the arrest, the unjust trial, the condemnation, the being spit upon, beaten, scourged, and crucified, this is Jesus bearing the sin of the world, a world that insists on violence, coercion, and accumulation at the expense of people. While Jesus' response to the crowd was to continue to the cross, Jesus' response to Pilate was to stay nailed to the cross revealing God for all time as co-suffering love, revealing God for all time as being one who was willing to die than kill his enemies. Theologians have called, upon, called Christ upon the cross the clearest revelation of who God is. If we want to know what God is like, the best thing we can do is to look at Jesus upon the cross. God is like that. God is defined in Christ at the cross. And Jesus stays on the cross because he is not up there trying to change God's mind or satisfy his lust for wrath. Jesus lays down his life of his own accord as an act of triune love, as the way God would be revealed to the world. The New Testament never mentions God being reconciled to us. 
It speaks only of our being reconciled to God. Jesus was not on the cross changing God's mind about us, rather changing our minds about God. The reconciliation of the cross is not God being changed. Rather, it is about the relationship of human beings and indeed the whole creation to God that is changed. Jesus is in the wilderness of a politics founded on power and enforced by violence. And at the cross, Jesus is offering a new politics, a new organizing principle. Love expressed in forgiveness with the goal of peace, also known as the narrow way. Pilate insists on calling Jesus the king, and while he meant it in a mocking way, he was right. The cross is the coronation of the world's rightful king. Someone says, Fred, you're always talking about how God loves us, but what about judgment? Bear with me here. From his cross, Christ, the king, looks at the world and no one escapes his judgment. Those who betray him, those who execute him, those who love him, and those who ignore him. He judges us all. From the cross, the pronouncement is made and the judgment is forgiveness. Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing is an eternally valid statement. Everyone in this story is projecting what they think they need Jesus to be. We do the same. Friends, it is only a God unlike us, a God who enters our human existence and suffers our insults with only love and forgiveness who can save us from ourselves. It is only a self-emptying God who humbles himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Only this one can save us. Because while the suffering and death of Jesus Christ on the cross is not about you, it is certainly for you. Nothing separates you from the love of God in Jesus. Not insults, not betrayal, not suffering. And as we will see at Easter, not even death itself. You know, friends, I am sure that throughout these days, we're all being challenged so deeply. I know I am. And I hear from so many of you that you are as well. And I know a lot of people are struggling with not being kind of their best selves right now. I want you to know God looks at us with mercy. God looks at us with compassion. We are just like these people who Jesus looks down from the cross and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so I want to end today with this quote from Nadia Bowles Weber. We people are the likes of which God came to save. Hallelujah. God did not become human and dwell among us as, as Jesus to save only an improved, doesn't make the wrong choices kind of people. There is no improved version of humanity that could have done any differently. So go ahead. Don't wait until you think your motivations are correct. Don't wait till you are sure you believe every single line of the Nicene Creed. No one does. 
Don't worry about coming to church this week for the right reasons. Just wave branches. Shout praise for the wrong reason. Eat a meal. Have your feet washed. Grab at coins. Shout crucify and walk away when the cock crows because we, as we are, and not as some improved version of ourselves, we are who God came to save and nothing can stop what's going to happen. Hosanna in the highest indeed. Welcome to Holy Week. Let us pray. Gracious God, we are the very people you came to save. You are the one who walks into a city that is going to destroy your son. And instead of walking away, you move towards it. Help us all as we wave our branches to more deeply day by day understand what you and your cross mean and what it means for us to follow you by taking up our cross in this moment. Give us grace to do it. Thank you for being our Savior in ways that we would never envision. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.